where we've come down to that point in our service, and we're going to open up the word together. Um, and if you're just joining us, welcome. Uh, my name is Tara George. I'm one of the pastoral staff here. And if you're just joining us, we are returning to a sermon series right now in 2 Corinthians. We are picking up in chapter 5. Uh, this is a letter that Paul has written to the Corinthian church, and uh, in this letter he explains to us what it means to follow Jesus with all of our lives. And so to read for us today is Sarah. Please give your attention to the reading of God's word. Our scripture reading today is from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 to 21. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him, who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Sarah. Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to become a Christian? Picture this. The year is 59 A.D., and Marcus Julius Agrippa II arrives in a place called Caesarea. He's a ruler of a number of territories under the Roman emperor, and he's traveled a great distance here on political business. And he arrives in Caesarea to find a man convicted of blasphemy and stirring up rebellion all over the country. The man's name is Paul, and he claims to be an ambassador of the risen Jesus Christ. Agrippa is perplexed. He has heard reports about this crucified Jesus and his followers, but he has scarcely imagined meeting one in person face to face. He is skeptical to say the least, but through a series of events, he now finds himself tasked with the peculiar trial of this man, Paul. The apostle, you see, is on death row, and the accusations against him are considerable. Agrippa knows that Paul will need to make a strong defense. The atmosphere is tense. 
He watches as Paul stretches out his hands and begins to speak. Agrippa listens then as Paul tells him about his search for meaning, his encounter with the risen Jesus, his conversion, and ultimately his call to ministry. Agrippa is intrigued. He expected to hear a defense for Paul's innocence, but he has instead been listening to a defense for the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is not the trial that Agrippa was expecting. This prisoner, bound in chains, has been preaching to his accusers, trying to persuade them to believe in this Jesus also. Astonished, Agrippa asked, Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to become a Christian? Paul grins. He replies, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. You know, whether you're someone who agrees or disagrees with the Christian message this morning, it's hard not to hear that story and admire Paul's courage. Men and women have for centuries, I think, read this particular account of Paul's life and wondered what could possibly drive an imprisoned man to respond like that. What would make a person so excited to follow Jesus that he would be trying to persuade people of the gospel, even on death row. Well, in our passage this morning, we have an opportunity to hear from the Apostle Paul himself. Because in our text today, Paul wants to persuade us of why the gospel is actually worth believing and sharing with others. Here in this letter to the Corinthians, he claims that there are three things that should encourage us to tell people about Jesus. And he invites them, he invites us to know them intimately. And here they are. First, know your motivation. Second, know your power. And third, know your calling. Know your motivation, know your power, and know your calling. We'll begin with knowing your motivation. Well, Paul in this passage claims to have two motivations for why he wants to persuade people about the gospel. He mentions the fear of the Lord and the love of Christ. Let's look at each of these and see what they mean in context. Now, if you're just joining us, Paul began this chapter talking about the eternity that awaits every person. He's been arguing that life right now and our experience of the world is almost like living in a tent. It's temporary. There's a frailty and an impermanence to all of life right now, whether it's our bodies or our possessions, our work, or even our loved ones. You see, one day, all these things will come to an end, and the question Paul has been asking throughout this chapter is this. Will you and I be ready for that day? And in verse 10, right before our passage, Paul concludes with these words, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. See, right off the bat, Paul here offers his readers an encouragement, but also a warning. For the one who would put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, God has promised a glorious inheritance and eternal life. They will live with God forever and enjoy peace and rest like nothing they have ever known. This is a marvelous encouragement in the faith. And yet the sober reality is that there are many who have never even heard the name of Jesus. People we rub shoulders with every day who don't know him for their salvation. People who are at risk of dying in their sins and being separated from God forever unless something were to change. 
I think you and I need to pause and feel the weight of that because everything the apostle wants to teach us today hangs on this fact. What then should be our response? Paul answers in our text, we persuade others. We persuade others. In verse 11, Paul writes this, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Now, on the surface, it might seem like Paul's ministry is motivated by him being afraid of God, but this couldn't be further from the truth. This phrase, the fear of the Lord, actually pops up all over the Bible, and most especially in the Old Testament. And in context, to fear the Lord means to revere him. It means to behold the entirety of his character, all his facets, and to be in awe of his presence. It's this recognition that God is loving and good towards his creatures. He is merciful and kind, but he is also holy and righteous and just. He can't condone sin and wrongdoing. He can't just turn a blind eye to evil. And this is important because Paul has just described this final scene of judgment, you see, where every person will stand before this God. This is what he's been saying. And as he thinks about this great and glorious day, it produces a mixture of incredible hope for himself and other believers, but also an incredible concern for those who don't have Jesus and who are not right with God. And knowing this is what motivates Paul to want to persuade others. In fact, Paul says, knowing this should motivate us to want to do the very same. We persuade others, he says, not just him. The fear of the Lord gives us this understanding of God's holiness, but it should also give us a holy concern for the unbeliever. They are in need of this persuasion. Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you might find this talk kind of bothersome. Why can't you just practice your faith privately? Why do you have to persuade people of your beliefs? And to that, I want to say two things. First, I think as recent events have shown us, all of us get swept up in a culture of persuasion. Listen, whether you support vaccination or BLM, pro-choice or Bill C-16, let's be honest for a moment. We're all on a mission to persuade people. And why not? Why not? If you really felt like what you stood for was good news for everyone, wouldn't you want it known? I think you would. I think you would. But second, you should know that the Christian is motivated to persuade you not just by some sense of conviction, but by love. If someone has invited you to church this morning or has bothered to share with you something about Jesus, it's because they really care about you. It's because they're convinced that Jesus really cares about you. Because this is Paul's second motivation for why he persuades others. In verse 14, he says this, that the love of Christ controls us. See, Paul understands intimately that it is only the love of Christ that has delivered him from the judgment he mentioned earlier. Were it not for Christ, he would have no hope before God. He would face the same fate as the unbeliever. And yet this love is so manifested in his life now, and he is so very grateful for the grace of God that his aim, his goal, his life's ambition is that he should do everything in his power now to persuade other unbelievers. The love of Christ so controls him that he has become this vehicle for Christ to now reach others through him. This is what the love of Christ is meant to do in your life. Which means this, Christian, 
The love of Christ has not come to you merely for your own good. It hasn't. This is a love that ought to control you, Paul says. The love of Christ has come to change the way you see yourself and the world. It has come to control the way you spend your time, the way you use your money, your priorities, your values, your lifestyle. And that feels pretty intense, doesn't it? I think there are many of us, well-intentioned people in the church today who want to accept the love of Jesus, but don't want to accept its control. We don't. We're not willing to let the love of Christ stretch us beyond our comfort or restrain us from certain sins or to challenge our personal ambitions because that would mean we are no longer in control. And we want to be in control, don't we? I know I do. I think if we're really honest, the truth of the matter is this. We want a love that controls our eternal destiny, but not one that controls our everyday affairs. I think deep down, I do, honestly, I think deep down we're afraid of what God might actually call us to do or where he might actually call us to go if we really and truly gave him full control of our lives. God forbid that the love of Christ should lead us to global missions or to campus ministry or to prison outreach for the sake of the unbeliever. God forbid that the love of Christ should drive us to give away our money or to leave our jobs or to move to another country entirely for the sake of the gospel. God forbid that the love of Christ should drive us to risk a spiritual conversation at work or to voice an unpopular opinion in class. Are we willing to look foolish in front of a neighbor because we proclaim the risen Jesus Christ? God forbid that the love of Christ should call us to suffering or to sickness, to singleness or infertility, so that through our endurance we might demonstrate to the watching world that Jesus is more worthy than that. I wonder, does any of that make you uncomfortable? I have to tell you, I'm not always sure that I'm ready for the love of Christ to control me like that. That kind of control over my life feels far too costly to relinquish. And maybe you're feeling the same way. But listen, this is Paul's very point, that what Christ did for you and I was infinitely more costly than that. Because in verse 14, Paul tells us how Christ manifested his love. He writes that this Christ has died for all, therefore all have died. Christ's love is revealed in that he died on behalf of people like you and me, that we might be restored to right relationship with God. He took the punishment that we deserve so that we might escape this judgment that Paul's been speaking about. And all of us believers are now mysteriously united to Jesus in his death. It's, it's almost like we have died too. We are dead to sin and selfishness, and Paul says that the purpose of all this, the purpose is that all of us, those who live, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Do you understand? The reason we no longer live for ourselves alone is because Christ did not live for himself alone. He gave up his life to persuade unbelieving people like you and me to come find forgiveness of our sins. And when we believe and trust in him and are joined to his life and ministry, we now give our lives for the same cause. That's what Paul is saying. 
To put it in another way, you have been persuaded of the truth of the gospel so that you might now live in the world persuading others. This is the point of what he's saying. What would motivate you? What would motivate you to live like this? Paul says two things in our passage, knowing the fear of the Lord and knowing the love of Christ. This is Paul's first point. Know your motivation. Now, secondly, Paul tells us to know the power of the gospel. You know, it's one thing to be motivated to live the Christian life and persuade others, but what resources, if any, does the gospel offer us in doing so? This is Paul's second point that he turns his attention to. Now, Paul has just described how the believer no longer lives for themselves but for Jesus. And in verse 17, he describes how this is possible. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And Paul here is alluding to the Old Testament scriptures that promised how God would one day renew the hearts of his people. You see, the scriptures anticipated how God would one day change and persuade people in the most incredible way. We read about it in our assurance. He was going to transform them and empower them to love and serve the world for good. In fact, this is what it says in Ezekiel 36. God says this to his people. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my ways. Paul is saying that through the death and resurrection of Jesus, this promise is now being fulfilled in the lives of all who believe. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ, you are this new creation. Sin and selfishness are no longer your masters because you now belong to Jesus. He has given you new desires and new values and a love for God and people that you never had before. God's Spirit has so grabbed a hold of you and has persuaded you of the truth of the gospel that you are a new, different person in Christ. You are a new creation in Christ. And this is really important, I think, because some of you this morning don't feel very different. You don't. Whether you've been a believer for a long time or you just recently came to faith, you've struggled to feel like this glorified new creation that Paul is talking about. And I know that for one reason or another, you've wondered sometimes if you really have this power because your life feels pretty ordinary. This passage troubles you, and it makes you wonder deep down if you really and truly are a person in Christ. Do not despair. Do not despair. My friends, I want you to hear what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, because he says this, He says the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, i.e., it is pure rubbish and nonsense to him when he hears the gospel. He can do nothing but reject it. Paul says he is not able to understand these things because they are spiritually discerned. But, he says, we have received the Spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given us by God. In other words, the evidence that you are a new creation in Christ is not measured by how Christ-like you feel on any given day. The evidence that you are a new creation in Christ is this God-given ability that the Spirit of God has granted you to wholeheartedly understand and believe in the gospel for yourself. 
That's what Paul is saying. Do you understand? Your ability to live in Jesus and believe in him amidst a world of unbelief is entirely extraordinary. You couldn't do that by yourself. God had to make you anew, and this is Paul's point. You are a new creation if you have believed in Jesus, and God is now on a mission, a wonderful, extraordinary mission to transform many, many others like you. This is the power we have as we seek to persuade others. Which means this, my friends, that as you go out trying to persuade people about the truth of the gospel, you are not doing so in your own power. You're not. We are persuading people with our feeble, clumsy, weak words, but the Spirit is giving them life and applying them to the hearts of unbelieving people so that they might receive them and believe in Jesus. Do you understand? This is a tremendous assurance. I think this is so important because you have people in your life right now who you think would never come to Jesus, not in a million years. Some of them don't appear to have any interest in God. And frankly, they seem pretty comfortable without him. Don't you write them off. Don't you write them off. There are others I think you know who have lifestyles and attitudes that so affront you that you can't even imagine them coming to Jesus. Don't think that way for a moment. Others of you I know have people in your life who have completely walked away from the faith and it feels like it would take a literal miracle for them to come back. You are not to dismiss them as a lost cause. Don't do that. Because these people I've described are not out of God's reach and you ought not to treat them that way. Because one of the marks of being a new creation, Paul says, is this uncanny ability to now see people differently. Paul says this about his ministry, that from now on we regard no one according to the flesh. We don't look at people or judge them through the eyes of the world. He says that we once regarded Christ in this way, but we do so no longer. We want now to everyone, we want to see everyone we encounter through the eyes of God. And this is a particular issue in the Corinthian church because, well, they struggle with this. In fact, in verses 12 and 13, Paul accuses them of regarding him and others according to the flesh. He says about them that they judge by outward appearances and not by what is in the heart. Paul wants to say, don't judge according to the flesh. The gospel empowers you to see people through the eyes of God. In other words, it empowers you to see every person's latent potential in Christ. Here's what I mean. Every person we encounter, no matter how stubborn or hard-hearted, has this potential to become a new creation in Christ. It doesn't matter if they're Milton Muslim or a devout Hindu or even a staunch atheist. God can save and transform them for his purposes. In fact, God is doing that all across the world. You can read about that even today. It is completely in his power to persuade people and make them anew. And we don't know who God will call, and so we ought not to dismiss anyone so easily. In fact, Paul himself, isn't Paul himself the very epitome of this principle? I mean, really, Paul opposed Jesus and his followers vehemently. He went around putting them in prison, torturing them and persecuting them. You see, God opened his eyes and persuaded him about the truth of the gospel. 
Paul, the apostle, went on to become the greatest missionary and evangelist in the history of the world. How? This answer is here in the text. Jesus made him a new creation. Jesus made him a new creation. Paul concludes in verse 18 that all of this is from God. It wasn't because Paul was smarter than anyone else or more holy as a person or even because he had a spiritual interest in Jesus. God saved him because that's what God does. That's what God does. He saves people by grace alone. That's what Paul is saying. And I found it curious that it is so often the practice of evangelism that reveals to us whether we truly believe that it is grace alone that saves people. Because we look at things like people's worldviews, their behaviors, their socioeconomic status, their sexual orientation, even their race, and immediately make a judgment about whether or not we think this person could ever be interested in the Jesus of the Bible. We imagine these invisible barriers in people's lives that would make the gospel seem unattractive, thinking that somehow, somehow, because of who they are and how they live right now, God could never, ever reach them. You know what we're doing? We're regarding people according to the flesh. Let me ask you, is God not able to change the most unbelieving heart? Is his grace not sufficient enough for the task? Paul says it most certainly is. It most certainly is. Listen, I've come to realize that the reason I'm prone to write people off from the gospel is because in my heart of hearts, I have a higher estimation of myself. I do. Over and over in my life, I find in myself a propensity to believe that there was something about me and my disposition that led me to put my faith in Jesus. And this same attitude leads me to believe that there's something about my unbelieving neighbor and his disposition that leads him to reject Jesus. Am I so very different from him apart from the grace of God in my life? Are you so very different from your unbelieving neighbors? We are not. We are not. I have come to the conclusion that the reason most of us think that a certain person would never come to Jesus is because we don't actually believe that salvation is by grace alone. We don't. If you and I truly understood the gospel, we would know that there's nothing inherent in us that made us accept Jesus which means that the hardest, the hard-hearted person, the most staunch atheist towards God is not any more separated from him than you and I once were also. Do you understand? The Bible says that all of us have sinned and left to ourselves, none of us would repent and come to Jesus unless God changed us and made us anew. This is what Paul is saying. My friends, the gospel changes people. Like, it really, really changes people. And we have to believe that. Is it possible that the same God who overcame your unbelief is capable of overcoming the unbelief of another? Paul says a resounding yes. A resounding yes. This is the power that Paul wants us to know as we seek to persuade others. This is his second point. Now, third and finally, Paul wants us to know the calling of the gospel. 
You know, he's given us our motivation for persuading others and the power with which we do so. And here at the end of our passage, he tells us what this all means for our personal obedience. What does this mean for you and I? Paul says this about the gospel in verse 18, that all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. For the one who has experienced the grace and forgiveness of God and Jesus, they are now invited to partner with God in this most important ministry. You and I have been given the tremendous privilege of joining God in the very redemption of the world. You are not just a spectator. You are a participant in what God is doing in saving and transforming people. In fact, Paul uses this word ambassador in verse 20 to explain our role. An ambassador is this high-ranking official who is chosen and certified to speak on behalf of a ruling power. And in the ancient world, ambassadors were sent as a sign of goodwill to establish or repair a relationship between a sovereign and his people. Oftentimes, they would be sent for reconciliation. And what would happen is this. They would travel ahead of the sovereign and carry a message from him with terms of peace that the people were to abide by. And the people would then receive this message and know that the sovereign himself was close at hand. The words, the very words of the ambassador were like the words of the sovereign himself. In fact, the very presence of the ambassador meant that the sovereign was coming soon and that the people should be prepared to meet him. And this is precisely what Paul is envisioning in our passage. He's saying that you and I are being called to represent the kingdom of Jesus as ambassadors here on earth. That's what we're doing. God is this great sovereign who is making ready to visit his people. He's coming soon. And he sent ambassadors before him to proclaim to the world his message of peace. Well, what is this message that we are called to proclaim? Paul tells us in verses 19 to 21. He says this, that in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. You see, the gospel is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's not. The reason that you and I can be reconciled to God is because our trespasses were counted to someone else. Paul says about Jesus that God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you hear that? Paul is saying that God chose for us an ambassador and it was none other than his son. Jesus had no sin and he was the only one who understood perfectly the fear of the Lord. By God's deliberate plan, he was sent to the world with a message of reconciliation. You see, the world could not listen. We couldn't. Instead, humanity judged Christ according to the flesh. We mocked him, tortured him, and then nailed him to a Roman cross. Men and women, understand that there's nothing more offensive to an offer of peace than what we did that day. We crucified the minister of reconciliation, and we said, to hell with your peace. We don't want it. And yet, according to God's sovereign plan and his great, great mercy, Christ in his death offers us this reconciliation. Because at the cross, Jesus took upon himself all our sin, hatred, and rebellion against God, and he endured the judgment that you and I deserved. 
And in exchange, he gave us his righteousness and made us anew that we might experience this tremendous peace with God forever. My friends, this is the message that Paul wants to preach to your heart. This is the calling that drives him to obedience, even unto death for Jesus. This is the calling that he says we are now entrusted with for the sake of the world. Would you be an ambassador for Christ and proclaim this with your life? Well, some application. What is Paul here in this passage calling us to do? How are we to read and interpret this? Well, I think Paul here is asking us to be more deeply motivated, more deeply empowered, and more deeply inspired by the message of the gospel. You know, if you're here and you're not a believer, well, you might think it's weird that Christians should care so much about your conversion. We do. Well, we really do. We're a weird, messy bunch of people, but we love you, and we want you to know Jesus. If you're curious about the gospel, would you connect with our church? We'd love to hear your questions and walk with you as you explore the Christian faith. I think Paul would say to you from this passage, be reconciled to God. And we would love to help you in that if we can. For the believer here, I think Paul is calling us to be ambassadors for Christ before an unbelieving world. We are tasked with the responsibility of persuading others. And now I know, I know that even as we hear that, each of us have our own individual hang-ups about why this feels difficult right now, or inconvenient, or unattainable. Let me say, I think Paul's words this morning offer us a helpful framework to overcome our resistance to sharing the gospel. Paul wants us to know our motivation, our power, and our calling with equal weight and clarity. Why do I say that? Well, I think there are many of you here who feel motivated to share the gospel, but you don't feel like you have the power. Others of you recognize God's power with certainty, but you don't feel like this is your calling. And still others of you, I think, recognize this calling, but you don't feel like you have enough motivation. Do you see? Paul wants to say that you need all three, all three of these. He holds all of these in perfect tension. You have to know how much Christ loves you and others. You have to trust that he can actually change people. And you have to believe, you have to believe in your heart of hearts that he actually wants to do this work through you. This is what Paul is saying. Look, spend some time in this text. May the God of the Bible persuade us to put away our hang-ups, whatever they may be, and go be his ambassadors. And listen, being an ambassador doesn't mean that you and I look exactly and become exactly like Paul. He's not necessarily asking you to go be a missionary or to be single or to remain poor just like he is. Not at all, no. The point of this text is that God has put you somewhere very specific for his purposes. And he may lead you elsewhere or he may call you to faithfully serve him exactly where you are. Wherever you find yourself, in whatever vocation or stage of life, God wants you to be this ambassador. Get to know your unbelieving neighbors, your friends, your family, your coworkers. Learn about them. Where are they spiritually? Do they even know that you're a Christian? Are they curious about the gospel? What are some ways that you might tell them about Jesus through your words and contact, your conduct? Think about that carefully. Pray for them. 
serve them and invite them out to your small group or Sunday service even. See, this passage says that God will most certainly help you, but, but, we must be obedient. We must. And as you do that, as you seek to serve him as an ambassador, may God give you the privilege of seeing many, many people come to know his grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this gospel. We thank you for the ministry of reconciliation, that you have reconciled us to God. Father, I pray that you would convict us here, that you would help us to take up this ministry that you've entrusted to us. That if there are people who haven't put their faith in you, God, that they would see their need for you, even today. And Lord, for the rest of us, those who have accepted you, would we be obedient to your calling? Pray that you would motivate us, that you would empower us, and you would help us in all the work that, and good works that you've called us to do. We pray and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, ordinarily, we would have time for Q&A right now, but I think in light of our passage and Paul's call this morning, it would be more appropriate for us to think and reflect on what Paul has shared. Wherever you are this morning, if there are barriers to you coming to faith, or whether there's barriers of you obeying this call and being an ambassador of Christ, I'd ask you to think about that now and reflect on that. I'd ask you to quietly reflect in your seat if there are people whom God has entrusted to you, maybe unbelievers or people who are exploring the Christian faith who are beside you at your work, maybe even beside you on the pew who are exploring the Christian faith. How might God maybe actually want to use you? I ask that you do that now for a few minutes.